if you just came out of episode 32D on FDR and the press with Harold Holzer, you may have heard me say something along the lines of, up next, I'll talk to Chris Nichols and Elizabeth Borgwart and Elizabeth Borgwart about FDR and American Grand Strategy. Unfortunately, there was a recording issue with that interview and most of the sound was lost, so I'm going to push that out to June as I work to salvage it. This week, I will instead share with you a recent discussion I had with the former director of the Franklin D. Roosevelt Presidential Library and Museum in Hyde Park, Paul Sparrow, on what is perhaps one of the most haunting and most important episodes of FDR's presidency, the internment of Japanese-American citizens during World War II. Thank you. Welcome to the Abridged Presidential Histories with Kenny Ryan, Episode 32D, an interview on FDR's policy of Japanese internment with Paul Sparrow. I'm excited to welcome Paul Sparrow to the show today. Paul is a writer, a historical consultant, and the former director of the Franklin D. Roosevelt Presidential Library and Museum in Hyde Park, New York. You can also find him on Twitter at Paul M. Sparrow One, number one. Today, we are going to talk about the origins, history, and legacy of FDR's policy of Japanese internment during World War II. Uh, thank you for your time, Paul. Uh, thank you. I'm happy to be here. It's a great podcast. Thank you. Uh, before we get to FDR, I thought it might be worth laying some foundation. The United States has a pretty long history of fearing and mistreating Japanese and Chinese laborers. The Western United States had seen race riots against Asians. Property and citizenship rights had been restricted for Japanese Americans. And there was a near total immigration ban on Japanese migrants since 1908 up through uh, FDR's time. So the question is why? You know, why did the United States have so many policies targeting Japanese migrants? And what was the relationship between Japanese communities and the communities around them in the years before World War II? Yeah, well, it's a complicated issue, and it goes right to the heart of Americans' xenophobia um, and their blatant racism. Um, again, the, initially, the restrictions were uh, directed at the Chinese who were coming over into the West Coast, particularly in large numbers, working on the railroads, doing work that no one else would do. Um, and the Japanese were allowed to immigrate, but the rule was that uh, the first generation of Japanese could never become American citizens. Uh, they were called Issei. And then the second generation, the Nisei, could you know, people born in America, they could become American citizens. And then after 1924, when they revised the uh, Exclusionary Act, uh, Japanese weren't allowed to immigrate at all. Uh, it was one of the many um, tension building components of the relationship between Japan and the United States as it gradually deteriorated prior to the start of World War II. So that's relationship on a national level. What about on a personal level? Did FDR have any experiences or exhibit any biases or feelings at all toward China or Japan or Chinese or Japanese Americans? Well, it's very interesting because the, the Roosevelt family had um, uh, extensive connections one way or another, both with China and with uh, Japan. So Franklin's mother, Sarah Delano, uh, was from a family of traders uh, and shipbuilders and whalers. And um, her father, um, Warren Delano, 
was a uh, deeply involved with the China trade, including the opium trade. Uh, and he made and lost fortune several times. And after having lost one fortune, he went to Hong Kong. And then his daughter and her and his son and his wife sailed on a clipper ship uh, to China, actually during the Civil War. Um, and so I think she, Sarah was either eight or 10 years old. So she had a firsthand experience with China. Wow. Uh, and the family loved China. And they had all these journals and all these, they brought back all these gorgeous, uh, you know, Ming Dynasty porcelains and ceramics and things which filled the house. So the FDR uh, childhood was filled with stories about China and all of these seafaring adventures. Uh, so he had a very strong emotional connection to China. On the other hand, his uncle, Eleanor's uncle and his FDR's cousin, Teddy Roosevelt, uh, had won a Nobel Peace Prize for negotiating the peace between Russia and Japan in the Russo-Japanese War. And in that war, the Japanese had launched a surprise attack on a Navy, Russian naval base and had behaved in a way that most sort of Western European American uh, diplomats had considered ungracious and, you know, uh, in fact, sort of barbarous in the fact that they violated the rules of war as if there's rules in war. So FDR had been predisposed against uh, the Japanese to begin with. And then, of course, in the early 1930s, they invade Manchuria, uh, they attack China, they engage in atrocities. The rape of Nanking is a fairly famous uh, example of the sorts of atrocities they committed as they were uh, trying to conquer China. And so this also you know, made FDR sort of very skeptical about uh, Japanese, and he didn't have the same warm feeling towards them that he did, for example, uh, with the Chinese. Very interesting. So so that's the context. Those are the emotions and the history leading up to December 7th, 1941, the Empire of Japan strikes Pearl Harbor and numerous other American and British positions across the Pacific. What immediate impact did that have on relations between Japanese Americans and the communities they lived in? Well, um, Again, it, it exacerbated and widespread anti-Japanese feelings that had already existed in most parts of America. Again, white Americans were racist. Uh, they felt superior to the Japanese. As a matter of fact, the inherent racism in the American military is one of the reasons they had trouble foreseeing this idea that the Japanese would attack Pearl Harbor. Mm -hmm. uh, rumors had come back from the American ambassador in Tokyo that there was talk about a potential attack on Pearl Harbor. The American military had actually run war games about an attack on Pearl Harbor. But the war game scenario they were operating with was that, was that Japan, Japan tried to invade Hawaii um, and land troops in Hawaii and conquer Hawaii. They never even considered the fact that it might just be a, an aerial attack, again, which was fairly unusual at that time. And they never thought the Japanese were capable of you know, launching a surprise attack against the Americans. So some of that was the sort of latent racism that they're not smart enough to pull that off. Um, but on the West Coast, uh, there was a, you know, a significant population of Japanese, probably between 115 and 130,000 Japanese were living along the West Coast. Uh, and many of them uh, were farmers. Uh, I've seen statistics that said about 25% of California's uh, agricultural crop came from farms owned and run by Japanese. Uh, even though they were a much smaller percentage of those who were actually engaged in farming. They had successful fishing businesses. Many of them had, that had been there multiple generations were well-established in their communities with businesses, lived in nice homes, 
Um, so, you know, they were, they were fairly well established and they had come to grips with the, you know, racial biases against them. Uh, but the, many of them were on very good terms with their neighbors. Um, what happens at that moment, particularly in Hawaii, where you had a very, very large Japanese American population, uh, was that the economy became uh, a major factor in how those resident Japanese Americans were treated. So the Japanese Americans were so vital to the economy of Hawaii that they were never incarcerated. Oh, wow. Um, there was initially some lockdown stuff, but they were never incarcerated or sent to camps, even though FDR was pushing for it. Um, basically, the, they found ways, the governor found ways to work around it, and they kept them there because they were needed. So um, the, the, the community reaction to the Japanese was bad on December 7th, and then it got worse after several incidents. You know, a Japanese submarine was seen, uh, an oil refinery was allegedly bombed by the Japanese. It's hard for people today to understand how Americans see, saw the world, which was that there was this war going on in Asia and there's a war going on in Europe, and the Japanese army seemed somewhat invincible, you know. Uh, and then after December 7th, 1941, you know, the attack on Pearl Harbor was just one part of a massive military effort, you know, over 4,000 miles. There were more than 10 different uh, cities and, and areas that were invaded and attacked, and they seemed unstoppable. The British just collapsed in front of them. Uh, they were highly trained. They'd been at war for years in China. So these were hardened troops. Um, and, and there was real fear that the Japanese were going to invade California and the West Coast. Uh, and so there was um, a perhaps unjustified fear, but a very real fear and, and sure. borderline panic yeah. that the Japanese were going to you know show up in the streets of Los Angeles. Um, and so there was a lot of fear that they were feeding information to the Japanese army, that the, the, the Japanese saboteurs in Hawaii had allowed, you know, assisted in the attacks on Pearl Harbor. So, you know, Japanese stores were burned. Uh, Japanese were harassed in the street. Uh, there was a lot of antagonism towards them. Yeah, it makes sense. You know, when a group of people that you thought was incapable of doing something does that thing, then you just start freaking out about what might happen. Interestingly, on the day after Pearl Harbor, Eleanor Roosevelt got on a plane, flew to California. Uh, she was uh, the co-chair of the civilian defense uh, force at that point with Mayor Fiorello LaGuardia of New York. <laughs> yeah. The first thing she did was, was go to the Japanese uh, community in San Francisco and hold a press conference uh, saying, you know, these are American citizens. They have to wow, be treated wow. fairly. We can't you know, allow civil rights to be violated. You know, uh, we have to treat them as Americans. All people deserve equal justice under the law. And it's very interesting that she continued throughout yeah. the period from December 7th to the, the executive order 9066 uh, to, to say, to lobby on the behalf of these Japanese Americans that they deserved to be treated uh, like American citizens, which most of them were. I had no idea that. Because, yeah, as you allude, you have Pearl Harbor in December. Two months later, February 19th, 1942, FDR signed Executive Order 9066, ordering the mass incarceration of Japanese Americans. So what, what happened in that two-month gap? How did the United States go from Pearl Harbor to rounding up the Japanese in camps in two months? Well, Executive Order 9066 doesn't act, didn't actually directly lead to the incarceration of the Japanese. Oh, Executive okay. Order... Executive Order 9066 says 
that we're going to create a military exclusionary zone um, along the West Coast, which says that the military then can remove any individuals that they consider to be uh, a danger to the defense of the United States. And then mm. the military got to decide who they're going to remove. Mm. So, mm-hmm. for example, there were a lot of Italians in San Francisco. Uh, none <laughs> right. of them were sent to camps. Right. Um, only the Japanese were moved. Now, there were differences between the way Germans and Italians and Japanese were treated. And there's a misnomer that the use of the word Japanese internment is actually incorrect. Because uh, internment specifically legally refers to uh, the detention of foreign nationals due mm. to armed conflict. And of course, you know, of the 120,000 or so uh, people of Japanese descent who were incarcerated during World War II, you know, about, about 110,000 of them were American citizens. 30,000 of them were children. So, you know, they were definitely treated differently. But Japanese citizens and American citizens of Japanese descent were just lumped into one category. Whereas um, Italian Americans and Italians were separated. So Italian nationals were interned, German nationals were interned, but German Americans and Italian Americans were not. Uh, so that's a big difference in the way this did. Now, part of the reason is that there were 5 million German Americans in the country, about 4 million Italian Americans. And what are you going to do with that? There were just too many of them, and they were out all over the country, whereas most of the Japanese were in the West Coast. Mm. Mm-hmm. So who are the big advocates on the two sides of this debate of whether to do the internment program? Um, you know, who was kind of in the lock them up crowd and who was in the have you read the Constitution crowd? Well, it's very interesting and somewhat surprising. Um, so there were two, two or three different factions who were pro-incarceration. Um, a lot of uh, white business owners wanted to see the Japanese incarcerated because they wanted to take over their businesses and they wanted to buy their, their businesses at cut rate prices and get their property. Uh, so there was sort of a very malicious component. Uh, and then there were the people who were genuinely frightful you know, and, and panicked and were concerned that these the Japanese were going to be helping uh, the empire of Japan invade the United States. And then there were the politicians. Uh, and one of the most uh, so the entire California delegation, Democrats and Republicans, and essentially the entire West Coast delegation, Washington and Oregon as well, lobbied Congress to, to pass legislation and lobbied the White House t- to issue some kind of executive order. And one of the leaders of that movement was the Attorney General of California, who was going to soon run for governor of California, who saw this as a good political maneuver. His name was Earl Warren. Now, for those mm-hmm. of you who are uh, students of the American judicial system, you will know that Earl Warren, after the war and in the 1960s, became a very, very important Supreme Court justice and, in fact, ruled for major civil rights legislation, including Brown versus Board of Education. Uh, so here he was during the war because of the sort of national security boogeyman uh, arguing to detain these Japanese Americans uh, unconstitutionally in camps. Um, yeah. And yet, you know, 20 years later, he's one of the great civil rights champions. And he always said that he had regretted his part in this. Now, on the on the other side, uh, in Washington, um, oh, and by the way, in California, the ACLU did not even raise an issue about this unconstitutional what? <laughs> um, wow. incarceration. Now, in Washington, you had two camps within the White House. Uh, you had the military leaders 
uh, absolutely saying we have to do this. This is a top priority. We have to get these. We, we cannot be vulnerable to this. Uh, you know, they're in our backyard. We don't know who's loyal and who's not. They all look alike. So how can we tell kind of racist comments? Um, and so we have to just take them all and get them out of the way. Two people arguing most, well, three people arguing most uh, strenuously against that idea. Eleanor Roosevelt, obviously, very passionate and mm -hmm. very uh, are just confronting FDR about this. And then the attorney mm -hmm. general, uh, Biddle, uh, who had been uh, very, very forceful in the early stages of post um, Pearl Harbor, saying, you know, we have mm -hmm. to respect the constitutional rights of, of American citizens, regardless of where they come from. And then, mm -hmm. again, strange bedfellows, J. Edgar Hoover. So hey. J. Edgar Hoover's FBI had been following all these Japanese nationals and the spies right. who've been operating throughout the United States. And after Pearl Harbor, they arrested about 900 of them. Um, yeah, and, right. put them in jail. and so then when this debate erupted about should we arrest them all, uh, who said, you don't have to. They're very loyal. We've, we got the bad guys. We, we knew who was right. spying on us and what they were doing. Um, but, and they're mostly taken care of. In fact, the Japanese won't recruit Japanese Americans to spy for them because the Japanese are so loyal. When they want to recruit a spy, they recruit white people and they pay them. Oh, yeah. um, but Hoover was overruled, uh, as yeah. was Attorney General Biddle. And Roosevelt went ahead and signed Executive Order 9066. And Eleanor was furious. She had literally been <laughs> on the radio the night before, you know, extolling American virtues of constitutional law uh, and really felt, you know, blindsided by this. And it was a, a point of great contention between them. And one of the few times when FDR told Eleanor, listen, I know you don't like it. Just don't go against me on this. Mm. Um, so it was a it was a very difficult time for them. So we, we have the two sides of this issue. They're all in FDR's ear. Why does he say yes? Why does he go ahead with it? Well, I wish we had a good answer for that uh, because, mm -hmm. you know, he never wrote his memoirs. He didn't keep a diary. He didn't keep a journal. All you can do is is put a, the pieces of the puzzle together that you have. Um, right. And when you look at throughout his career, FDR was a pragmatist. He was a very pragmatic politician. You know, I'm not trying to get the best thing done. I'm just trying to get something done. Right. And, and, you know, in the 1930s, when he was trying to get his New Deal legislation passed, you know, his wife, Eleanor, was fighting for a federal anti-lynching legislation. I mean, who sure. could be against, you know, anti-lynching legislation? But the Southern Democrats in the Senate, who controlled all the major committees, you know, basically said, you pass that bill, we will never pass another New Deal mm -hmm. legislation. Mm -hmm. So he made a compromise. He didn't support the lynching and he got his New Deal policies passed. Uh, and he did this in several instances where he made a deal to get what he wanted. So in 1941, early 1942, what he wanted was unlimited funds from the Congress to you know, continue massive arms buildup, to transform the army from 250,000 poorly trained and poorly equipped soldiers into what became a 12 million man army, the largest army, military, Navy, Air Force in the history of the world. Uh, so he needed money and he needed their support. Uh, and so there was so much political pressure, he knew that it would just clog up the system if he didn't agree to this. So he agreed to it. 
I also think there was some animosity towards the Japanese. I mean, he felt betrayed. You know, he had written a letter to Emperor Hirohito the night before Pearl Harbor. Oh, wow. They were still negotiating with the the Japanese ambassadors. As a matter of fact, the Japanese ambassadors came to the Secretary of State's office with the final, you know, sort of rejection after the bombing had started at Pearl Harbor. Right. Uh, So, you know, there, there was a lot of reasons for them to be angry and, I think it's one of the stains on the Roosevelt legacy, but he did what he thought he had to do. I'd love to delve more into something. You've talked about this a bit already, but who all was put into these camps? Is it anybody with Japanese ancestry, like period? Anybody who's like Asian, you know, were, were any other communities impacted? And then you mentioned too, you know, there there are some German and Italians who also get picked up in this. So um, along the West Coast, the only people that were... Uh, and they they initially called it relocated. You know, so the initial relocation uh, were only Japanese Americans. And there were two subsets. There were the Issei and the Nisei, the first generation who were still Japanese citizens, right? Because they weren't allowed right. to apply. They could not be naturalized. They weren't allowed to apply for citizenship. And then their children and grandchildren who were American citizens. Right. In many cases, these families lived in multi-generational households. Mm. So, mm-hmm. that, that, again, one of the excuses they used was that, you know, if you've got an American son and a, and a Japanese mother, you can't decide who's going to be loyal to what. So you just got to take the whole bunch of them. Okay. Uh, and so, again, about 120,000. You know, there's lots of different ways to look at the numbers, but generally you use the sort of figure of 120,000 of which most were American citizens. So it was mostly the older generation who were Japanese. Yeah. Um, and so, but they, again, many of these had been in the country for, um, you know, generations. Yeah. So yeah. that they were, they, they saw themselves as American. Right. Um, and that, and, and they were, uh, so the order went out in late February. Uh, they were, notices were put up, you know, in every different community, the Japanese Americans had to report to a, a, a relocation center at a cert, by a certain date. Um, trucks would go through the neighborhoods and pick people up. So they had to sell their houses and their businesses and liquidate things. They couldn't take very much with them, only what they could essentially carry. Uh, and of course, people were very antagonistic towards the Japanese. So people weren't helping them, you know, yeah. in very few cases were they helping them. And what's very interesting in the terms of the visual record uh, was that there was a photographer named Dorothea Lang who was very famous for her photographs of the Depression. You've probably seen her picture of the mother and the child sitting in the dirt. Um, it's a, she, she was hired by the Roosevelt administration to travel the country and take pictures of how people were dealing with the Great Depression. Uh, and she was living in Berkeley at this point in 1941 and was contacted and said, we want you to document, we want you to take pictures of the roundup you know, of this transition. Um, again, for propaganda purposes, they wanted to show how humanely they were being treated and how willingly they were cooperating. And mo- the, mo- the Japanese on the whole were convinced that the best thing they could do was to prove their loyalty to the United States and not fight this unconstitutional, unlawful detention. So she photographs these people in their homes, in their businesses, at their schools. And it, it's a it's all in the Library of Congress. It's a fascinating visual documentation as these people are dehumanized and humiliated and transferred in cattle trucks to horse stalls at you know county fairgrounds and um, racetracks and things. Um, 
it's it's a pretty extraordinary um, action on the part of the American government. What what's the name of the photographer again, so people can look it up? Dorothea Lang. She's very well known. Cool. Thank you. Um, can you elaborate more on what happened to the homes and possessions of everyone who was interned? Like, is there any opportunity for these people to put stuff in storage, or are they losing everything? Well, it, it depended what their economic status was. You know, again, very few of them were wealthy. Uh, mm-hmm. There was a small percentage of them that were fairly successful. Uh, they could they were able to put some money in banks, but for for example, the federal government made made no provisions for taking their possessions into escrow. Right. You know, in other words, it was just like, whatever, you have to try to get rid of it. Um, and so most of them lost their businesses. There were a few communities, uh, particularly farming communities, where the farmers had worked closely with their neighbors. Uh, and then rural areas, of course, there's not as many people, so you become more friendly with the people who live near you. And there are in- documented instances of neighbors purchasing uh, Japanese properties and then returning them to mm-hmm. uh, their original owners when they were released from the camps. But in most cases, uh, the, the families lost pretty much everything. Wow. Uh, and, and say, I'm just curious, like say the family isn't able to sell their stuff. The army shows up, they're put in the truck. What happened to their home and all their possessions at that point? Is it just like up for grabs? I mean, <laughs> at that point, I believe the communities would auction them off. Wow. Okay. Thank you for those details. Um, what were the camps like? You know, like where were they? How many were there? So again, there are sort of three stages here. The first one is that they sort of rounded them up. Um, yeah. And when we did the exhibit uh, on this at the FDR library, we did an exhibit on uh, images of internment, uh, yeah. incarceration of Japanese Americans in World War II. Um, uh, one of the most powerful images we had um, was this picture of a, a little boy looking out through the slats of a truck mm-hmm. that he's being driven away. And George Takei, the famous actor mm-hmm. um, from Star uh, Trek, uh, yeah. and has been an advocate for uh, better public information regarding the um, incarceration of Japanese Americans. He wrote a play called Allegiance about it. Yeah. Uh, he's been very, very active with the Japanese community. He came to the exhibit. We did a wonderful program with him. He's an incredible man. Anyway, he walked up to this picture. And you could see the emotion in his face. I really thought he was going to start crying. And he says, I remember that moment of looking out through the slats of the truck as we drove out of my neighborhood and asking my father where we were going. And he said, I don't know. Wow. Um, and it, it sort of, I mean, I, even now I get chills yeah. thinking about what it must have been like, not just for the child looking out, you know, yeah. through the slats of a you know, cattle truck, but for the parents knowing that they have lost all control of their life. And, and where and they are have they? done nothing wrong. Yeah, right? yeah. And where are they being taken? Like, are these folks going from California to just further inland California? Are they being taken to Texas, you know? So then from from the um, sort of re- gathering points, they're taken to the initial relocation centers as they're building these camps. So, you know, and it took take a while to build some of these camps. They're basically like army camps. Yeah. Um, and so many of them, for example, the Santa Anita racetrack, <laughs> it was converted into a temporary holding facility and the families were put in horse stalls, oh many of gosh. which had had horses in them just days prior. Wow. Other ones were taken to the um, California state uh, um, fairgrounds. Yeah. Uh, and yeah. they were taken to county fairgrounds or places like that uh, where they could be housed in sort of these really 
horrible conditions. Um, and it, you know, a lot of the times they didn't have adequate running water or facilities. There was no food. It was, it was a really terrible situation. And then as the camps were built, um, they would move the uh, detainees into the camp. So they were a total of about uh, 10 major camps that were built. Uh, the first one was in Manzanar in Southern California. It's a very famous one. There's a big national park there now. Mm. And the other ones were built in different. There were some in Utah, some in Colorado, some. I think there was one as far uh, east as uh, Nebraska. Uh, wow. There was one up in uh, Minnesota. Uh, and so they were th these different camps were built. And again, they were built like um, army barracks. You know, there's a barrack, central barrack. There were in rows. There's barbed wire fences. There's guard towers. There's armed guards. Um, and so initially, it's 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 pretty terrifying um, and pretty inhumane conditions. And what was camp life like? Let's elaborate on that. You know, were all these Japanese Americans just ordered to sit around all day with nothing to do? What were the guards like? You know, were they benign? Were they abusive? And did any of the interned Japanese Americans resist in any way? So three different questions, three big yes, answers. Yes. <laughs> um, yes. The first thing to understand is that the, um, the Japanese were trying to maintain dignity. Yeah. So the first thing they did when they arrived at these camps is they tried to organize themselves into groups. They, they elected leaders. Uh, they tried to create, you know, educational systems. They had schools. Uh, they grew, had gardens. Uh, they had church service and religious services. Several of them that had a lot of children set up little league teams. Wow. A couple of them, even the little league teams started playing with the white little league teams in nearby communities. Wow. Although when they had... They had a Boy Scout camp, um, and the Japanese tried to go to the Boy Scout jamboree. They were refused entrance, mm -hmm. so it wasn't, it wasn't all great. Yeah. Um, but they t tried very hard to bring some sense of normalcy to this horrific circumstance they found themselves in. Um, and so, you know, they they would have, uh, you know, they would have a, a prom for the girls and the mm -hmm. boys in, who were sort of high school age. Mm -hmm. uh, they would have uh, book clubs. Several of the camps uh, started newspapers. Uh, for the news of those camps. So they, they desperately tried to create some kind of, of normal life for yeah. the children uh, yeah. because, you know, th this is what you wanted to do. Uh, and then, of course, at a certain age, you know, 18-year-old males and older, you know, a number of them volunteered to join the Army or the Navy. As a matter of fact, a, the initial unit out of Hawaii, I believe it was the 100th, um, went on to become highly decorated union. Um, mm -hmm. And then uh, later on, as they got more organized and they got volunteers from a number of the different camps, mm. I think it was the 449th. Um, they combined that with the 100th, and it was one of the most highly decorated units in World War II. Uh, and when they would go home, there's this series of photographs which are absolutely chilling, which show uh, the mother and the father and the boy in uniform, <laughs> sometimes with a, with a sister or... Yeah several cases holding the photograph of another son who is in the military and they pose them before in front of these American flags. And it's just such a visual, you know, contradiction, you know, right. here they are, they've incarcerated this family, this boy's mother and father are essentially in jail and oh yet he's serving America to prove his loyalty. Yeah. Um, so it's a, you know, it, it's a very complicated situation. Now, 
one of the things that a lot of people don't fully understand about this is that the the relocation only applied to the West Coast. So the Japanese Americans in the East Coast or in other areas, they weren't sent to camps. I was going to ask about that. Yeah. They, they were outside of the exclusionary zone, so they weren't sent to camps. And if you were relocated off the West Coast and you could get a job someplace else, you know, get a job in a farm in Nebraska or you had friends who lived in Florida, then you were allowed to go to those other locations huh. uh, and be dispersed across the country. And, and there was a, a good number, not a huge number, but a good right. number who were able to do that. And Eleanor Roosevelt, of course, c- continued her championing of these people and uh, you know, fought to allow um, the college-age kids to go to college, leave the camps. If they're not going to join the military, to leave the camps and to, and to attend colleges in the Midwest and on the East Coast. So over time, the initial sort of very restrictive um, conditions under which uh, these Japanese Americans were being held were, were loosened. Um, and and they, they started to uh, allow more and more people to come out into the country, especially as the war evolved and it became very obvious to everyone that the Japanese were not going to attack the West Coast. Yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. a lot of the justifications for this sort of became very hard to maintain. Right. And then, of course, there were multiple lawsuits that went all the way up to the Supreme Court. And we'll get to those lawsuits in a second. Um I'm curious, have, have you, did you hear any stories about that experience of Japanese Americans serving in the military and what that was like for them? I can only imagine the treatment they might have received from fellow soldiers or the questions they might have received from fellow soldiers or even their family back home, you know. Um, do you have any anecdotes about what that was like? Yeah, so like I said, the, the initial unit which came out of Hawaii, um, they they were they were a segregated unit, you know. It was all Japanese Americans with white commanding officers. Um, and then when the, again, I can't remember, I think it's the 449th, uh, when it was formed, it was the same thing. This is a segregated unit and they were sent to fight in Europe. They did not fight in the Pacific. Some of them were um, trained as as translators mm-hmm. uh, or interpreters, um, but not, not a whole lot uh, were allowed because again, there was still this suspicion, you know, they weren't really fully trusted. Mm-hmm. Uh, and initially, as they would go into combat zones, they were the units were viewed with great, you know, antipathy by the American soldiers because Ameri- the U.S. Army, the U.S. Navy, the Army Air Force were all segregated units. Yeah, right. And so, right. you know, Japanese were not normally would not have been integrated into a white unit anyway. Yeah. However, they very quickly established themselves as highly competent, courageous and cohesive as a unit. Uh, and so as their reputation built and as they um, proved themselves in the field of battle, uh, the situation changed. Um, not unlike what happened with Tuskegee Airmen who were initially, you know, essentially all they were allowed to do was, you know, ferry planes back and forth. And, and then suddenly they're engaged, particularly in Italy in combat missions. And they performed very, very well to the point where there were some bomber pilots that said, no, we want the Tuskegee Airmen to escort us over Germany because they're much better at making sure we come back alive. And you saw a similar thing happening with the Japanese units. So it, it sounds like at the camps, they were generally allowed to leave these normalizing lives as much as they could within their circumstance. Um, 
how frequent or prevalent or how many stories do we hear of, you know, were there guards who were abusive in that situation? Or were there any Japanese Americans who wanted to resist and and not just kind of go along with it? Well, there's not a lot of not a lot of stories about, you know, really abusive uh, guards, although I'm sure there were some instances, but there, there was definitely a, a segment of the population of the Japanese American population who were very angry, who understood they, like I said, they sued. Some of them refused to show up and were arrested. Um, but the big problem came uh, in 1943 when the government decided, because one of the things that their argument with the courts was, was that we don't know who we can trust, and who's, who's loyal and who's disloyal. Sure, sure. And so the lawyers are like, well, can't you figure that out? <laughs> How those who are loyal release them. You know, yeah, we, yeah. This, this can't be a permanent status. And so they came up with this loyalty oath uh, that they wanted all the Japanese Americans to sign. Huh. And there were, it was a multi, I think there were 40 or 50 questions. And there were two questions which became really, really controversial. Hmm. Question 27 and 28. Uh, and question 27 basically said, will you serve in the armed forces? And question 28 said, will you renounce your citizenship and pledge undying loyalty to the United States? Mm-hmm. Okay, so we have two problems here, right? Yeah. Um, if you're an 80-year-old Japanese woman, you're not going to sign this form that says you're going to join the military. <laughs> right, right. You know, so right off the bat, there's like, wait a minute, there's got to be, this can't be... A or B, right? Is there a nursing home unit? Like, <laughs> um, and so there was, and there, the, the second question, question twenty-eight, which said, you know, would you swear on dying law in the United States? Again, remember, some of these people were still Japanese citizens, right. were prohibited by law from becoming right. American citizens. So right. if they renounced their Japanese citizenship, they were a person without a country. Yeah, uh, and so they were concerned about that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, and so and so there were. Uh, certain categories of people who didn't want to say yes to these two questions. And they were, were known as no-nos. And if you were a no-no and hadn't agreed to 27 and 28, you were classified as disloyal and a danger. And all of those people were shipped to a separate camp, Tule Lake, which became a maximum security camp, essentially a punishment camp in which the conditions were much worse. There were very few freedoms. And they were essentially treated as hostiles. Wow. Um, and this was women and children. Whole families were sent to these camps uh, to wow. send to Truly Lake. So this was, and this became very controversial. And in fact, there were there were riots at several of the camps and disturbances and protests to the degree that in 1943, FDR asked Eleanor if she would go <laughs> to one of these camps to show her support and to try to calm things down. Wow. So, I believe she went to Topaz, one of the camps, and uh, met with them and talked with them and tried to show her support. Uh, there's famous photographs of her meeting with them. Um, there's a, a very interesting story about a Japanese artist who had been a professor at Berkeley uh, and had helped sort of popularize Japanese ink drawings and watercolors. Um, and he painted a, a painting, uh, Watercolor on Silk, which he... Uh, sent to Eleanor Roosevelt after she visited the camp uh, called Topaz at Sunset. And you see the mountains and it's this beautiful painting. And that painting hung on the wall of her home for the rest of her life. Wow. And it was on the wall in her bedroom when she died. And she actually, after the war, when he put out a book about Japanese painting, she wrote the foreword for it. Wow. So, you know, she had a, a commitment to, to helping 
or what she helping resolve what she considered a gross injustice. That's a that's fascinating. Um, uh, next question. This is one we've been dancing around a bit. You know that there had been practically no Japanese immigration since uh, 1908, and then like none since the 20s. So the vast majority of these were these second generation. Truly Japanese Americans, American citizens. You're born here. You're a naturalized citizen. Eventually, one of them, supported by the ACLU, sues and his lawsuit, I mean, multiple lawsuits, but this person's lawsuit gets all the way to the Supreme Court. So let's talk about that lawsuit. How did the Supreme Court rule and why? Well, yeah. So there were several uh, people who sued for different reasons. Um, You know, Korematsu is sort of the most famous one. Um, and their their point was that, you know, the government has to prove that I am disloyal before they can lock me up. Right? I have done nothing to deserve uh, being incarcerated. A fair request. <laughs> a, a fair request. Uh, and so, you know, there were um, these studies that were these reports that were issued basically saying that um, the U.S. Army can't distinguish between these. And so Fred Karamatsu uh, the other two, I believe, was um, Hirabayashi um, and um, uh, Yus- Yusui. Uh, and these are all people who had refused to show up at the relocation times sure. uh, and insisted that they had uh, rights as American citizens, which, of course, they did. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. And But the Supreme Court held that the exclusionary, you know, they, they ruled executive order 906 was constitutional. It's, it's within the president's power to designate areas, particularly in wartime, as exclusionary zones. Uh, and that at this point, there was no way to distinguish between loyal and disloyal Japanese Americans. Now, eventually, it turned out uh, with later investigations um, that the government had withheld information. Oh. Um, uh, and that there had been a report that had said, you know, almost all of these people are loyal. That You know, there's no indication oh whatsoever God. that they are not loyal to the United States. Certainly nothing that would justify the incarceration of American citizens. But that that data was withheld. Um, and so it wasn't until much later um, that they uncovered this actually in the in the 2000s. Um, and so but as the war went on, it became harder and harder to hold this up. And so by you know late 1944, it became obvious that the Supreme Court was going to rule in his favor, at which point they started mm. they started releasing uh, many of the people in these camps. Um, now, in fact, they never the Supreme Court never officially overturned Executive Order 9066, um, but they did you know uh, rule initially at least that uh, the government was acting within its constitutional authority to put them in jail. And I'm curious now. This is one where I'd expect they would have had to write down the reasoning. Why would they say that's okay when the Constitution is so clear? Like it's right there in the Bill of Rights about you know you can't just deter people, you can't just intern people, or, or arrest them and incarcerate them. You know. Yeah. Well, again, this is what this is what the, the scandal was about. Was that the, the army said in this report that was issued to the court uh, yeah. that it was, and again, talk about sort of blatant racism. They were basically saying the inscrutable Asians, we can't tell who's loyal and who's not. They all look alike and the families are intermingled. And so we can't distinguish between who's loyal and who's not loyal. Um, And but they knew when they said that and when they presented that to the court, they knew it wasn't true. But they withheld 
the data that that showed it was not true that showed a vast majority of these japanese americans were loyal um and, and posed no threat whatsoever because they didn't want to release them back into it now one of the other things they claimed is that they would be subjected to violence and retribution if they were released back into their communities it would cause disruption be bad for morale you know they made up a lot of different excuses yeah um, yeah it's good but, for them yeah but, yeah but in the end it, you know the they lied um and eventually the court was going to rule in the favor of Korematsu and the other one. So, so it was expected that there was going to be another case that was going to reverse the earlier case. Right. And, and you know, so the, 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 and again, by, by 1944, you know, the, the war is pretty clearly going in a direction. Right. All of that, you know, fear and, and, and the racism was still there. Right. Hence the antipathy towards the Japanese was still there because of the reports of the atrocities, you know, the Bataan death march and the, prisoners who have been killed and, and murdered and mutilated and the horrific conditions of these POW camps, you know, that information yeah. was flowing back to the United States, yeah. um, just as it was flowing out of Europe about the mass murder of Jews and the yeah. terrible yeah. treatment of any kind of dissidents there. So, you know, during a war like this, where you have this level of atrocity being committed on a regular basis, um, you know, it's it's easy to continue to keep that xenophobic hatred going for mm. our enemy. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's very interesting if you look at the posters, for example, that were made during World War II, uh, the way that Germans are presented, which is always sort of evil, you know, with the beady eyes and the hats and the, but yeah. the, way the Japanese were presented was often as insects. Um, they were dehumanizing them um, in a way that was, you know, again, blatantly racist, um, but again, feeding into this hatred. And what's truly, uh, this absolutely astonished me. The U.S. government actually made a chart that showed the difference between what a Filipino looks like, what a Japanese looks like, what a Chinese looks like, and made these incredibly racist statements about how you can tell the difference between them. Uh, Because the Filipinos and the Chinese are our friends, but the Japanese are our enemies. Wow. And so it was, <laughs> yeah, that's the level of uh, just extraordinarily shocking behavior uh, that was being engaged in at this point uh, in, in the way Japanese Americans were being treated. When did the Japanese internment policy finally end and what, what was kind of the given reason for it? And <laughs> how are the people treated on their way out? Was it just kind of like a pat on the back? Sorry, my bad. I mean, were they anything to help them get on their feet initially, at least? So, it, as I said, they started, you know, um, moving people out of the camps. Anybody who had some place they could to go. Sure. Yes. Um, yeah. uh, they, they would start moving them out first. So this starts in 1944. Certainly by 1945, they're emptying the camps out fairly fast. Because remember, this was expensive as well as everything else. You know, yeah. You know, to yeah. house 120,000 people for four years, that's not cheap. Um, so the government wanted to get out of this business. Yeah. But the, particularly the ones who had been put, sent to Tule Lake and the ones who had refused to sign the yeah. loyalty agreements, part of that deal was that if you don't sign the loyalty agreements, when the war is over, we're sending you back to Japan. Whoa. So for the people who were Japanese citizens, the, the, you know, the older generation, the Issei, you know, that may have been okay. But for the younger generation, they'd never been to Japan. They were Americans. Yeah. Uh, and so the ones that had been considered, you know, disloyal and were put in Tule Lake and were considered, you know, difficult or dangerous. I think the last one, last person was released to the camp, I think, in early 1946. Wow. 
Wow. And 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 what's the initial? Is it just a a wave goodbye? Good luck figuring oh, yeah. it out out there. Basically, they gave him a check for twenty five dollars and put him on a bus. Holy smokes! And wow. um, again, George Takei talks about his family's experience. They had been successful. His father had owned a, a business a store in, in Los Angeles, and they went back, and they're faced with you know multiple levels of crisis. Number one, yeah. they have no money. Yeah. Number two, no one will hire them. Oh my God! Number three, yeah. they have no place to live. You yeah. know, their homes were all taken. Or uh, and and. Their father, who had been a successful businessman, was essentially reduced to, I'm not positive of this, but I think basically being a janitor. Yeah. Plus, his spirit was broken. You yeah. Know? You know, I mean, you know, the, the humiliation, the degradation that they'd been subjected to, you know, he was a broken man. Yeah. And so the family, it took years for the family to sort of get back on its feet. And this is a very common story. Um, and of course, no one would speak of this, right? It yeah. was, no one wanted to talk about it. Right. It was like, it was like the Holocaust after the war. No one yeah. wanted talk about it really right. you know, uh, and, and so for these japanese american communities the whole point was they wanted to fit in they wanted to be seen as good americans you know they wanted to rebuild their lives uh, in those few areas where you know neighbors had uh, acted honorably and, and maintained the houses and the people went back they were able to get back on their feet much quicker um, but a, 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 i would say a majority of those who were released from the camps struggled for for years to try to get back on their feet. Jumping back to something you said earlier that a question has emerged in my mind. You mentioned that, you know, these loyalty O's had that question 27, will you serve in the military? Were they kind of forcing the enlistment of people? Like if you signed that question, were you put in the military? Um, there was pressure put on the, the military age men to join the military. Plus there was the sense that Number one, they would be making money that they could send back to their family. So it would help their families. Yeah. Right. Um, and it would they they thought that maybe their families would get better treatment if they joined the military to prove their loyalty. Um, but uh, they were, you know, yes, there was pressure on them, but it wasn't just about the loyalty oath. And again, this is why that question was so ridiculous. <laughs> you know, it, it how do you answer that? Again, right. if you're a, a 24-year-old woman with three small children, you know, yes. will you yes. enlist in the military? It, 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 the problem was that they were um, structuring the questions in such a way uh, that they wanted people to just blindly say yes to everything. And then you were moved into the category of, okay, these are loyal citizens. And if you're not willing to just say yes to everything, then you're a disloyal citizen. Um, and it was, it was grossly unfair. But again, a lot of the you know, military age men who joined the military, you know, they had to volunteer, um, you know, did so partly because of the expectation of better treatment, the expectation of being able to give money to the families, but also, and this is very important, it was a act of honor, right? They were proving their loyalty. They were willing to risk their lives. They were willing to give their lives to the country that has incarcerated their families. Uh, and so it was a point of honor for many of them. So mid forties, you know, 45 to 46, these Japanese are, are, are let go. The internment policy ends uh, a check for $25 and a bus ticket. 40 years later in the eighties, Ronald Reagan issued a formal apology and signed a bill that paid $20,000 in reparations or up to 20,000 to each survivor of the camps. 
probably not as much as they were owed, but better than nothing. What do you know about how this came about? And I'm curious if it offers any roadmap at all to other minorities uh, in this country who might be owed reparations, like, for example, Native Americans or African Americans. Well, again, two very different questions. Sure. Um, so the during the presidency of Jimmy Carter, um, a movement started about um, some kind of recognition of the injustice that was done. Uh, was that originally started by the Japanese community looking for money, but they wanted an apology from the government. Yeah. Um, and Jimmy Carter created a commission, uh, and the commission looked into this, spent several years, they had congressional hearings, they traveled around the country, they interviewed all these people, and they came up with a final report and recommendation, uh, which stated that the, they should be compensated, they should be a formal apology. And when Ronald Reagan became president, this report came out right at the end of the Carter administration. You know, he followed through on this and um, he had a ceremony. And there, there were at this point, there were a number of Japanese Americans who had been incarcerated or had served in the military during the war who were now congressmen and senators, famously, mm-hmm. uh, Inouye, Senator Inouye from Hawaii. Yeah. And some of them had been friends with people when they were in uh, camps. Um, mm-hmm. And so there was a political movement that the government had to do something. And, you know, the $20,000, it's one of those, it's a token. Yeah. It's a token. Yeah. But more importantly, and I, and I hesitate to say this as a white man, but I think more importantly to the community was the formal apology by the federal government, recognizing the injustice that had been, um, placed upon their families or in many cases themselves. And and then the second part of this question of does this this reparations, this investigation, the, the committees, they, does that offer a roadmap for other minorities? It's a great question. I really don't have an answer to that. Um, I think the circumstances are somewhat unique in this context. It's more like um, the, the way the justice system handles people who are incorrectly arrested and incarcerated for extended periods of time, particularly African-American men in the South in the 60s and 70s, even now, who are arrested and convicted of a crime. And then 10 years later, turns out, oh, wait, the the cop faked the evidence or someone else has confessed to the crime. And the communities, you know, the police departments or whoever was responsible, you know, pay them restitution for the time they spent in jail. Um, So I think that's the parallel we have but, you know, stealing a continent from an indigenous peoples, you know, and then putting them in camps and taking on the land away, I don't know how you equate that um, with what was done with the Japanese Americans. It, it's a horror. It's an injustice. Technically, those Native Americans did not have constitutional rights because they weren't considered American citizens. But, and the same, the, the argument is the same can be said about the enslaved peoples, but I don't agree with either of those assessments, but I'm not in a position to come up with a solution for how you how you remedy, you know, gross injustices. Well, I, I so appreciate your time, Paul. Uh, if you've enjoyed this interview with Paul and want to learn more about FDR, please consider visiting the Franklin D. Roosevelt Presidential Library and Museum at Hyde Park, New York. You can also give Paul a follow on Twitter at Paul M. Sparrow one number one. Thank you for your time, Paul. Thank you, Kenny. Great talk. Thank you for listening to today's episode of Abridged Presidential Histories. 
If you enjoyed it, please subscribe, tell your friends and family about the show, and write a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. You can also follow the show on Twitter at APH Podcasts and on Substack, a bridge presidential newsletter. If you would like to support the show, you can look it up on Patreon or go directly to www.patreon.com slash abridgedpresidentialhistories. This helps me write books and pay to host the show, and thank you so much to everyone who has contributed so far. The music in today's podcast is a public domain recording of the United States Army Old Guard Fife and Drum Corps. In our next episode, it will either... Our next episode will either be that conversation with Chris Nichols and Elizabeth Borgwart on FDR and American Grand Strategy, or it will be an interview with David Michaelis on Eleanor Roosevelt. One will be next, the other will follow. That's the future on Abridged Presidential Histories.